everyone, and welcome to episode four of Agenda 23. Today, we're really excited to talk with Jeff Moyer, the CEO of Rodale Institute. Jeff has served at the Institute for 43 years in positions such as farm director and executive director, and now most recently CEO. The board of directors' decision to appoint Moyer CEO reflects his expertise and influence in the organic community at large, as well as the tremendous recent growth of Rodale Institute. I'm also really excited to talk to you about the roller crimper. You know, that's one of the things you're most well known for conceptualizing and popularizing, Jeff. And in conjunction with his position at Rodale Institute, Moyer previously served as the chair of the National Organic Standards Board, a founding board member of Pennsylvania Certified Organic, chairman of the board of the Seed Farm, part of the Green America Non-GMO Working Group, a project member of the Soil Renaissance Project, and a board member of both the Pennsylvania FarmLink and Soil Health Institute. You're someone who knows a lot about soil, a lot about farming. We're really excited to have you on this podcast today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Mackenzie. Appreciate it. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, us too. I think we would love to start with just, if you could tell our listeners a little bit about what Rodale Institute is and the history of this term regenerative. And I think we all can agree we see it moving this term really fast and a lot of people are starting to get behind it. And so we'd love to kind of have you take us through from the beginning of regenerative. Well, sure. I'll, I'll get started. And if I veer too far off course, I'm sure you or John will reel me back in and, and point me in a, in a, in a different direction. Uh, the Rodale Institute is a 501c, non, C3 nonprofit research and ed- education facility really dedicated to the concepts of soil health, human health, climate health. Uh, so we have a team of scientists. We conduct novel research here at our uh, main headquarters, our facility. We operate in eight locations across the country. Uh, we have research facilities in California, Iowa, Georgia, and of course our, our world headquarters here in southeastern Pennsylvania. Uh, then we have other uh, farms that we have uh, facilitates. One of them happens to be on the grounds of a hospital. So we have a farm to patient plate hospital. We have a uh, have a facility at Pocono Organics. We have our founder's farm, which is the original farm that J.I. Rodale, our founder, uh, purchased when he st- first got interested in agriculture back in uh, 1939. And then we have our virtual campus as well, because we are an education facility. We have a very dynamic web-based educational opportunity facility. So we operate in eight locations. Uh, Our goal and our our mission hasn't changed over the last 75 years, which was really uh, written on a blackboard by our founder in 1942 when he said healthy soil equals healthy food equals healthy people. Now we have added the word healthy planet to that because uh, the ideas and the concepts around climate change weren't very prominent back in the 40s. We weren't talking about that as part of our, our conversation, but today we are and so we added that. But really it stems from the concept that J.I. Uh, uh, Rodale was thinking about back during that time period, uh, and he was not a farmer, he was a businessman from New York City, uh, purchased a farm because he could afford to, and because he was really interested in growing food for his own consumption. Uh, But not being a farmer, of course, when you start asking questions about how you get into agriculture and how do I do this, uh, land-grant universities around the country were pointing him in the direction of, of heavy inputs, which again, made sense to him as a businessman and a novice farmer. Uh, The idea that inputs came in and outputs went out made perfect sense until they started describing what those inputs were. And the inputs were salt-based fertilizer and poisons, poisons to manage weeds, poisons to manage diseases, and poisons uh, to uh, manage insects. And he said, at no time did anybody talk about the soil. And he said, shouldn't the soil have something to do with all this? Aren't, isn't my, the quality of the food or the health of the food that I produce directly linked to the health of the soil? And of course, the response from the university system at the time was, no, that really has nothing to do with it. It's all about inputs in, outputs out. And that just didn't make sense to him as a novice. So I think it was really, in some ways, fortuitous that he was not an agricultural professional and it gave him a fresh set of eyes 
of which to look at the, the problems that he was facing in food production. And he wrote on a blackboard, he said, healthy soil equals healthy food equals healthy people. And that's always been our premise. And we've worked, uh, worked diligently to put science behind that, that his son, Robert Rodale, took over the organization in 1971 and was really um, concerned at the time around uh, the issues of climate change. He was an early uh, proponent of that conversation. And as he looked at the world and said, if, if organic agriculture holds the solutions to many of the world's problems, why isn't it being adopted faster or more quickly? And the answer came back, uh, we don't have enough science uh, behind it, whether we like it or not, agriculture, and, and we tend to do like it, uh, agriculture moves on the back of science and farmers wanna know that there's uh, science behind the story that is not just a story because they're, they're sold stories as many of us, of us are uh, all day, every day, the world is full of nonprofits that tell a story, but there's very few that put science behind it. And so Rodale Institute works hard to do that. Jeff, I met Robert Rodale, Bob Rodale, I know it's in the late 80s, maybe 88, 89, or early 90s. But I remember this was the early days of the sustainable agriculture movement. And Robert Rodell was a little bit critical of the sustainable agriculture movement. You know, back then, organic was called the O word then. It was organic that was out of style. And when they first come in, USDA allocated money to go to what's called the Low Input Sustainable Agriculture Project. It really... Rodale had a lot to do with backing organic, and that came together with farmers during the farm financial crisis that were concerned about the cost of inputs and then the rural community advocates. But when they came up with the idea of sustainability, Robert Rodale would say it's really regenerative agriculture. I remember him saying that very specifically. They would talk about, I think it was four or five different R's. He'd say, okay, if it's going to be sustainable, if it's organic, then it's going to be regenerative, it's going to be resilient, it's going to be renewing, it's going to be restorative, it's redesign. They would go through the, all the R's. And it's kind of, kind of interesting to me that now we're back where regenerative agriculture is kind of the lead now. Early it was organic, and then it was sustainable, and then organic became profitable, so then it was organic, and now we're looking at regenerative that started, in, in my memory anyway, with Robert Rodale. And I noticed that you're talking about, as we've gone to the industrialization of organics, you're talking about certifying a regenerative organic. Could you tell us a little bit of the thinking behind sort of regenerative organic and how that relates to sustainability and those issues? Sure. Well, you're, you're absolutely correct, John. Uh, the Rodale Institute and Robert Rodale were never big proponents of the word sustainable or sustainability right. because you can, in many cases, sustain a, a, a bad system with enough external inputs. Uh, a friend of mine who's a journalist, uh, Greg Bowman, uh, often said uh, his way of describing sustainability or sustainable was uh, if someone asked you how your relationship was with your significant other, and you said it's sustainable, would people be happy or would they be sad for you? Um, and our relationship with, with the soil and with, with nature and with our food should be much more than sustainable. Uh, you know, the, the marketing world really liked the word sustainable. It was something they could sell and, and they pushed and, and they have done that for the last uh, 30 years, uh, 40 years to the point where the word means everything and it means nothing all at the same time. And, and as you mentioned, Robert Rodale was really interested in the word regenerative and saying that uh, if we if we manage our, our food production and fiber production systems properly, we can actually regenerate the resources that we use to produce that food and fiber. It doesn't have to be destructive. It can be regenerative. And if we can regenerate uh, the soil, then we, we can also regenerate a farmer. We can regenerate a farmer's spirit. We can regenerate whole communities. Everything gets better, but it starts with the soil. And so uh, the Rodale Institute has never uh, given up on the word organic or, or lost sight of that word. We still believe that organic is a key component of a regenerative system. And it's a little, uh, in, in some ways, it's, it's disingenuous to say that uh, you want to regenerate the soil, but you still want to spray pesticides all over it. Uh, it's like saying you want to be an athlete, but you don't want to give up smoking. Uh, you can say it, but it doesn't really make it true. You really have to have, take those uh, that whole system into uh, into your thought process while you move forward. And so uh, about, uh, I'm going to say it's about three or four years ago, 
uh, Rodale Institute was really interested in, in creating a definition around the word regenerative as more and more people were gravitating towards it and using the word regenerative in many different ways. And we wanted to maintain its linkage to the word organic. And so we did uh, partner with some uh, major brands that, that your listeners would probably recognize brands like Patagonia and Dr. Bronner's uh, being two of the major brands we worked with, recognizing that if we wanted to create a standard around these words and give them definition, we had to gain some voice in the marketplace. Now, Rodale Institute has a voice in the marketplace, but we don't have a product. And so our voice with consumers and the general public is quite small compared to some of the major brands. And if we knew if we could build a partnership with the federal government using the word organic with a uh, for-profit brands, uh, like the brands I mentioned, Patagonia and Bronner's and Danone and others, uh, we could then create a, uh, oh, and along with a nonprofit, you have this three-legged stool that we could create a standard that had meaning, that could be marketed, that consumers could uh, voice their support for in the marketplace, and we had the chance of, of succeeding. And so that standard was created. It launched officially last August, and so it's only been in place for about uh, six, seven months. The, uh, the standard is being held by, we created a separate nonprofit called the Regenerative Organic Alliance, which is really an alliance of, of multiple players uh, and multiple brands. And we are now in the marketplace. So we're excited about that and the potential that it holds for making substantive change in the, in the world. Is this an add-on to the USDA certified organic? Would you have USDA certification of the organic aspect and then you have certain requirements for it to be regenerative organic or is it a kind of a standalone label? That's a great question, John. It really is a, uh, a partnership with the word organic uh, as it's owned by the U.S. government. In order, in order to use the word organic in the United States around the concepts of food and fiber production, you really have to adhere to the National Organic Program and, and the USDA standard. Okay. On a global basis, uh, what we do is we, if, if product isn't coming into the U.S., because our standard is a global standard, uh, we defer to the IFOAM family of standards, which is the International Federation of Organic Agricultural Movements. Uh, they have a family of standards that they accept. So if, say, product is going from uh, Turkey to Romania, well, the USDA has nothing to say about that and doesn't right. look at that. And there, the iPhone family of standards would come into okay. play. So we do partner with an existing organic standard. We, we enjoy that word. We don't want to give up on all the work that we've done over the last uh, you know, 40 years to, to make that word uh, really a household name uh, to consumers. But then we add other components to it. Because the, the, the organic standard is uh, weak in certain areas by design. Uh, for example, uh, when organic was popular in the 70s, even into the 80s, before the federal government took over the ownership of the word, the idea of continuous improvement was all part of what organic stood for. The idea that you would regenerate your soil and get progressively better over, over time. Uh, well, you know, the USDA had no mechanism for inspecting or certifying a concept of continuous improvement. And so they took that out and set it on the shelf. Um, there was always this idea that uh, soil health was really important in the organic movement. But again, it was kind of challenging for the USDA with the standard being placed under the Ag Marketing Division of the USDA or the Ag Marketing Service, AMS. It was difficult for them to look at soil health. They had no scientists on staff to do that. And so while there's language in the, in the federal law, in OFPA and in the regulation around soil health, it's very, very weak. And then there's also the idea of animal welfare, which the standard is fairly quiet on, and then social justice, farm worker standards, in which the standard is completely silent. Uh, again, the Ag Marketing Department has nothing to do with uh, farm worker standards or social justice under the USDA or under the federal government regulations. And so there's no language in there around that. And yet we know that those are important components as you look at the life sustaining ability of a farm. It's not just the life of, of the food that it produces, it's the life in the soil, it's the life for the farmer, it's the life of the farm workers. All of that has to be looked at in a regenerative system. And so we add those components to it. That's really cool. I love that the workers included. And where do you all fall compared to the folks with Real Organic Project and those standards? Well, I sit on the advisory board of the Real Organic Pro Project. Um, 
their standards are slightly different than ours. Uh, they don't really discuss social justice all that much. Uh, they're, they're, that, that standard really sort of grew out of a, uh, a reaction to the federal government's acceptance of hydroponics in organic systems. And, you know, there was a group of farmers uh, that coalesced around this idea of real organic that said, wait a minute, that's, that's, that's a little wrong. You're saying that organic is around soil health, but there's no soil in the system. Uh, and we've often said, those of us in the organic community have said for uh, decades that organic is not a one-to-one -one substitution. You know, farmers that transition from conventional to organic would often say, well, I can't use this fertilizer. What fertilizer can I use? And we would say, well, it's not about one-to-one -one substitution. It's about the whole system. And what you're going to do is you're going to improve the health of your soil and your soil will feed the plant. Well, that's completely not true in a hydroponic system. What it is, is it is completely a one-to-one -one substitution. You're saying, I can't use this material in my bag of water or, or rock wool contained, uh, container. I now can use this substance. And it's really a chemical input system. You're just using organic components to find that chemical structure. And while we are very clever as human beings and we are smart enough to figure out what to put into a solution in water to grow a head of lettuce for 30 days, we are not smart enough to know what to put into a, a bag of water to grow a human being for 90 or 100 years. Uh, we are very complex creatures. And if all we did was ate hydroponic food, we would die. We cannot divorce ourselves from the soil and expect to live as a species. Uh, and so, like I said, we're, we're great at growing indoor plant communities. And there's not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying that's not enough to sustain us on this planet as a species. We need the soil and we need to be linked to it. It's very complex. There's it's very a... simple, but it's very complex. It's not complicated, <laughs> yeah, but agree. it's complex. You know, there's been quite a bit of uh, on the on the Internet and discussions in different groups about uh, your oncoming or proposed relationship between Cargill, partnering with Cargill in order to transition more acres into organic production. Would you like to talk about that a little? Is Cargill willing to go along with this idea that it has to be truly regenerative and, and restorative and renewing and resilient and all these concepts that Rodale historically has stood for? Well, I, I, I certainly would never presume to speak for Cargill or talk about what they believe in or what they think. Uh, the project is really centered around uh, Bell and Evans a poultry operation, which happens to operate out of uh, southeastern Pennsylvania as well. And they came to us and because we have a consulting arm, we have an arm of the Institute that helps farmers transition from conventional to organic. And they said to us, look, we need the poultry industry, the organic poultry industry is growing rapidly. We cannot keep up with demand. We need more organic chickens. And we can do that and we can find more organic farmers to transition to grow and produce organic chickens. What we can't get is enough feed to feed those chickens because under the USDA standards, they need to get 100% of their feed from um, organic sources. Uh, Bell and Evans company uh, will not purchase grain uh, that isn't domestically produced. They only want US produced grain for their birds and they advertise that I believe as part of their um, sales pitch to sell product into uh, customer-based supermarkets. And so they came to us and said, would you use your consulting arm to help us transition more farms, more grain producing farms from a conventional to organic? And we said we would be willing to do that, but there was a missing link. We have a knowledge base on how to produce the crop, which Rodale Institute will supply. We have an end user of the feed, but there's a logistical piece in the middle that was completely missing. We need trucking, we need storage, and we need feed grinding. Uh, the chicken producers don't grind their own feed, they buy it. And uh, in this case, they bought it from Cargill. And so we approached Cargill and said, look, we need more organic acres, uh, a, lot of more, a lot more organic acres. And we, um, we're willing to help you transition farmers if you can help us bring farmers to the table. And we wanted farmers of scale and size because they need... Uh, thousands and thousands of acres of grain to produce these uh, millions of chickens. And so it was a partnership that from some people may find uh, a little challenging and difficult. Uh, we are not uh, naive enough to think that we are going to change Cargill overnight. We will say that Cargill has been very receptive to the ideas of organic. They already were in the organic world and in the organic community with logistics, and they are certainly willing to 
grow that side of their industry. Are they on board with regenerative organic and the concepts around that? Uh, I don't know. Um, probably some individuals are and some individuals are not. It also seems like that's kind of an input substitution approach to their organic as well. You're substituting organic grain for inorganic grain, but the rest of the system is pretty much the same as an industrial system. Well, the uh, the poultry that on, on the... Um, the poultry end of it's what I'm talking about. Yeah, well, I, I would say that uh, uh, Bell and Evans does a really good job of uh, getting their chickens out on pasture. They have great regulations around that. And it, it, certainly there is a scale involved, but quite honestly, if we want organic and regenerative organic to grow, we have to work at scale. We have to work with farmers who are interested in doing things at at a larger scale so that we can have more rapid transition of, of land. Um, we know within that scale, uh, we work with farmers of all size. We work with uh, BIPOC farmers of, of any size and scale, but a small scale. We work with community gardens uh, and we'll work with a farmer that's farming 30,000 acres. We don't uh, distinguish between size and scale. We know that uh, the planet is suffering uh, people are suffering. And in order to make things happen, we have to move farther faster and we need partners to do that. Sometimes those partnerships seem strange or maybe even uh, a little uh, unworldly. Uh, but again, we're not, we're not trying to greenwash whatever Cargill does with deforestation and all the issues and problems that, that they have with their workforce and, and with their mindset and doing business. That's, our goal isn't to greenwash them. We will say that if Cargill is willing to use funds that they have to make an improvement and soil health and change the way farmers are farming and support that, then we support them in doing that. There's a quote from Food Systems Thought Leader Anna LaPay in, in the article about you all and Cargill and Civil Eats. And I would love to just read it and get your take on that. But she said, of course, there's nothing bad about moving 50,000 acres to organic. That's what we need to do for all farmland. But to achieve the real transformation needed, that requires regulatory and policy change that will support all farmers to make this transition. To the extent that Cargill is blocking such progress through its lobbying or corporate donations, for instance, this partnership will have as much effect as spooning sand out of a sandbox while a dump truck pours more back in. I want to give you a second to respond to that, but also I'm thinking that listeners who are you know, listening to this podcast really are interested in, in activism and pushing policy. And so in addition to the partnership that you have with Cargill, I would love to hear any advice you have for people to support you in doing that by pushing these regulations. And so Cargill are held to a really high standard. Rodeo Institute has been spooning sand out of the sandbox while dump trucks are dumping it in uh, for the last 75 years. Uh, and yet we're making great progress. So we really believe that uh, while a large segment of the industry will continue to do what they do, uh, we're making huge inroads. When it comes to policy, policy is really uh, a, a dictated by uh, voters. And as we can transition and, and, and convert more and more farmers to organic, regardless of their persuasion or how they vote in terms of their party, uh, we can get them to vote on issues that are important to the organic community. Organic is not a, a democratic issue. It's not a Republican issue. Uh, it's it's a, uh, a bipartisan issue. Organic is good for the community. It's good for the environment. It's good for the economics of the farm. And so people who are conservative and want conservative economics, organic fits in there well. People who are liberal and want to see healthy food on healthy plates for, to get everybody healthy, regardless of your uh, economic, where you are in the economic spectrum, organic can do that. And so we see it really bridging the gap between parties and sound policymaker, uh, policymaking decisions should be based on those concepts. And we believe we can have a, a huge impact and a huge role to play there as more and more people begin to look at this, uh, this side of the industry. You know, we were sitting in our state house here in uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, several months ago, talking about some funding for our our uh, consulting arm. And we've been blessed by having a, uh, we have a Republican Senate, a Republican uh, Congress, uh, or House of Representatives, and we have a Democratic uh, governor. So we have a real mixed bag here in Pennsylvania. Uh, our governor is the first governor in the country to really pull together a uh, broad sweeping farm bill. Uh, we were talking, we're going to talk a little bit, I guess, about the federal farm bill. Uh, Pennsylvania has a state farm bill. Uh, 
there are six pillars to that farm bill. And one of those pillars that we were able to uh, talk the governor into was transition to organic. He did not get that approved in a Republican legislature by talking about uh, getting pesticides out of the system or improving soil health. We, he got it approved because of the economics of it. Look, if you can take a, a, a crop of corn and you're farming uh, here in Pennsylvania, you know, three to 500 acres is, is a, an average size farm. If you're farming 500 acres and you can triple the value of that product, it's like farming 1500 acres and you didn't do any more work and you're still growing corn and you're still growing soybeans. What is the problem with this system? All you're changing is the way you're growing it. And so we have people that said, look, I'm, I don't. I don't, I don't even like the customer that buys my product, but it makes financial sense for me. And, you know, I'm not going to convince them to like their customer who might be a, a, an activist listener to this podcast. Uh, the average person in Indiana or Illinois that's farming 5,000 acres doesn't understand them, doesn't care about them. It's not their goal. But if they want to buy the product that that farmer is selling, that farmer would be foolish not to produce it for them. It's an economic decision. And that's how we got that passed here in Pennsylvania. Uh, our, our, and this is something we need to do on a statewide basis. We don't have to look to the federal government for this. States can do these things on their own. Here in Pennsylvania, the, uh, the uh, Secretary of Agriculture working with the legislature set aside $250,000 a year, which is nothing in a federal, in a state budget. And for that, we can now put a consultant in every farm office or home kitchen of a farmer that wants to transition to organic for free, for free. You, and we can do that in every state. If the state legislature would just allocate a little bit of resources, we could, we could put uh, people on board to help farmers transition, not because it's the right thing to do, not because it's what activists think they should do. It's because economically it makes perfect sense. Oh, and by the way, it improves the health of the soil, improves water quality. It improves all those issues that are concerns to us. And you get that almost for free. So it's exciting. So how do you explain people that stay with what I call industrial agriculture, the specialized, standardized, consolidated agricultural systems that are based on pesticides and commercial fertilizers and that sort of systems? Why do they adopt those systems and why do they stay with them if it's more profitable to go to the organic systems? Well, there's a, there's a whole lot of reasons, John. Uh, um, you know, one of the reasons is we've got if you look at the statistics, we've got six times as many farmers in the United States, and it's pretty much true worldwide, that are over the age of 65 as we do under the age of 35. If you're over 65, highly capitalized into a production system, what's your incentive to change? You've grown up in that industry. You've been indoctrinated. Uh, the university supports that. The land grants uh, support that. The extension offices all support that. Uh, USDA supports it. You know, while farmers claim to be very independent, and in many ways they are, there's also a very strong herd mentality in the farm community. And your goal isn't necessarily to be the best farmer. It's just don't be the worst farmer. Because as long as you're in the middle of the pack, you're going to survive. And you're going to get to live the life you choose to live in the area you choose to live it. Uh, you know, banks don't want you to go under uh, all of those things. Banking industry is an interesting one. You know, uh, we're about to enter spring and the, the land from at least south to north is, is beginning to green up. We still have snow cover here in Pennsylvania, but it won't be long. That'll be gone. And farmers are going to move to the field and they're going to move to the field across this country with borrowed capital. Now I go to the bank. We farm at home. My son and I farm at home and we're going to go to the bank and we're going to need operating capital. Now we're an organic farm, so it's a little bit different, but if, if I'm a conventional farmer and I want to transition to organic, the first thing I say to the banker is, I want to transition to organic. And the banker says, oh, that sounds great. Uh, where are you going to sell your product? And the farmer says, oh, I'm not sure, but the market's really hot. Oh, okay. Um, but who's going to pick it up? Who's going to, he can't, up until now, they couldn't call Cargill. Uh, so he's like, where are you going to take it? Where's the elevator that's going to take it? Where's the truck going to be? Who's the end buyer? And he'd go, I don't know. And the bank would say, hmm, you know, there's a word that I really, really hate. And that word is risk. And this sounds like risk to me. And you're not risking your money. You're risking my money. So let's do what you did last year. And the farmer says, but I could make more money this way. And the farmer, the banker goes, yeah, but I made my money last year. 
Whether you did or didn't, I did. I get mine off the top. I get mine first. Let's go with the old system. So there's this entrenchment in this keeping the status quo going. And that's true about any industry. You know, there's always a infrastructure. There was an infrastructure to keep horses and buggies in place. Look at the silly auto rules that they had back in the turn of the last century when you had to stop at every intersection, get out, blow a horn, wave a flag, uh, yell in both directions that you were coming, then get back in your car and cross the intersection. Can you imagine? Those rules would never fly today, but yet you had to do that because the horse and buggy industry said you're going to scare the horses. You can't do this. Well, there's the same thing true here in organic and conventional. There's a resistance to change, but if you talk to young people, people who are under the age of 35 that want to get into agriculture, they want to do something different. They want to do something novel. They don't want to be uh, spraying pesticides all over the landscape or themselves or their family. They've seen what's happened in other generations uh, or set up a system where you're basically a welfare uh, recipient of the state through subsidies. You know, if we didn't subsidize crop insurance, our green industry in the United States would stop today. If suddenly the federal government said we are not going to subsidize crop insurance, our industry would stop. That's that's foolish. That's kind of what I wanted to comment on when you were talking about going to that banker. Yeah. Uh, wh what impact do these foreign policies have on it that where the government steps in if you have a problem within this large scale industrial system, if you have a problem with it? Not only do they subsidize the insurance, about 60% yep. of the insurance that covers not only a yield insurance, but also now you can insure the price as well, the, the which income. basically, yep. if, you, if you find the right relationship, it insures the income overall. Correct. And then in this past year, when you run into problems with disasters and floods and the ratios here in this area, but also the trade disruption because of the China deal, mm -hmm. there was something like between 46 and $47 billion of direct payments to farmers, basically the large-scale grain producers. Yep. So what impact does that have on trying to transition to regenerative agriculture, organic agriculture? What's the impact of farm policies? That's one of the things that we're focusing on in this podcast is not just the positive farm policies, but what impact does the negative farm policies as far as transforming agriculture into something that's more regenerative or sustainable? Well, uh, let's face it. I don't care what industry you're in or how you make a living. Uh, people do what they're incentivized to do. And right now we're incentivizing bad behavior because of the policies that we have, as you just laid them out. You know, six, crop insurance is a great one. We're so sure that our current system is going to fail that farmers could never afford their, afford their insurance. Well, do you get subsidized for your auto insurance or your homeowner's insurance? It's like, no. If you're a bad driver, your rates go up. If you're a good driver, your rates go down. Farmers aren't like that. It's all the same. And we're so sure that it's going to fail that the, the actuaries who developed those charts and tables for the insurance company said, and farmers could never afford it. It's ridiculous. We know we're going to pay out. We've created a system that is not resilient. It is not regenerative. It is not resourceful. None of the R's you mentioned earlier in the podcast are, are in there. And we're so sure it's going to fail that we can't afford the farmers to insure it. So we'll subsidize that insurance. Now a farmer says, oh, I got cheap insurance. If as long as I do what they tell me to do, and if I step out of that paradigm, I take on some of that nasty word risk, but we have some early adopters and there are many, many farmers. That's why the organic industry is growing uh, so rapidly. You know, it's a, it's a $55 billion a year business here in the United States alone. The challenge that we have, of course, is that a large percentage of the product that consumers in the United States consume was produced overseas because we have policies in place that keep farmers doing what it is they've always done. And we've told them over and over and over again, you can't do it organically. And yet when they try or their neighbor does it, they go, oh, well, actually we can do it. And so we have early adopters who are moving. Uh, it's why we need programs like the project that we're working on with Bell and Evans and Cargill. And, and yes, there's challenges involved with the players and the partners. And, and is it perfect? No, it is not. But the, the perfect group to work with that has all those logistics doesn't in place. It isn't there. So now we can go to a farmer and say, look, we've got 
And that farmer can go to the banker and say, we've got an end buyer for the product. We've got somebody that will help us through the transition process, both in terms of buying the transitional grain and having a consulting arm. So I can get a consultant on my farm for free to help me through the paperwork, to help me through the logistics, to help me uh, through the implementation of the farm. So I can create a weed management strategy. I can create uh, crop rotations. I can create all those pieces that I'm not familiar with. You know, if I'm a good farmer, uh, you know, and, and somebody brings me all those skills, I should be able to put that to work and make a transition if I'm inclined to do that anyway. And that's why I'm saying if you're, if you're 75 years old, you may not be inclined to do it. If you're 35, you're going to be very inclined to do it. I, I have one more question I'd like to ask, and it relates to, to policy indirectly, but Rodell's probably done some of the, the best long-term research on carbon sequestration, and it's probably most frequently cited as the source that says that we have the potential to go to a it's kind of a net negative if we create the kind of agricultural system that sequesters carbon in the soil. Right. And so when, when we look at the farm policy in the coming years, then we're probably going to have some sort of economic incentives in in the new farm bill and a new farm policy for carbon sequestration. Has Rodale kind of taken a position on carbon trading or some of the other things that have been proposed to sequester carbon that might be beneficial to regenerative agriculture? Do you have a particular position on any policies that might support the kind of research that you've done there? Well, yeah, that's a real tricky subject. Uh, we've never been overly supportive of carbon market trading. Uh, carbon market trading has a lot of challenges. You know, carbon exists, we, we always talk about carbon as if it's one entity. Carbon exists in many different forms and some of it is not as stable as others, even in, in terms of soil carbon, uh, let alone the idea that, you know, if you, you look at tissues, uh, tissue paper, that's carbon. If you look at diamonds, that's carbon. You know, if, if, and we have to be careful what we incentivize. For example, Pennsylvania historically has been a coal mining state. So we have a lot of this residual material called coal dust, uh, mountains of it. It is a contaminant. It contaminates uh, ground, uh, surface water, gets into the groundwater. It's a pollutant. Yet it's pure carbon. And I can take that coal dust and I can apply it to my farmland. And when you test my soil, my carbon rates are going to go up like crazy. And actually what I did was contaminate my soil and made it unhealthy. So it's not just about carbon. It's about where that carbon is, what that carbon is. And it, we're not, we don't want to just translocate carbon from a, a slag heap to my farm. What we want to do is grab it out of the atmosphere and put it in the soil. And we want to put it in the soil at greater depths. And our research has really shown that in a conventional system, what you're doing is you're short cycling that carbon. You're storing it in the top two inches of the soil until you do any disturbance at all. And that can involve as something as simple as just driving the planter through the field, disturbing that little bit of soil, that carbon goes right back up into the atmosphere. And taxpayers, in my opinion, uh, and history has shown are not interested in paying long-term for carbon, which is really short-term storage. And so you're paying every year for the same carbon to be resequestered. That's ridiculous. We need to look at supporting farmers for the product that they produce, which is the food and fiber, paying them a fair uh, uh, amount for what that product is. What we've done is we've, we've said food and fiber is a commodity. Whenever something is a commodity, it's a race to the bottom. What's the cheapest way I can possibly get that commodity into the marketplace? There's no incentive to create a high bar standard or to raise soil health or or raise the whole industry up. It's like, it's a race to the bottom. Carbon markets are just another way of racing to the bottom. How can I get that carbon credit so I can get the money as cheap as I can possibly do it? There's no incentive to do it well. And we're really interested in looking at creating products that farms can produce in the food and fiber area that the marketplace will sustain, that makes perfect sense. And oh, by the way, we get to sequester carbon along the way, and that's all good. And so we should have policies that really support getting organic food into school systems, getting institutional buyers to buy organic food. Why are we, why are we serving food in hospitals that makes people sick? That's just insane. We had a group of doctors here at our institution, just as you visited in the past, they visited just last year. And they said, you know, if we listened to what Rodale said, we wouldn't make as much money because our goal isn't really to heal people, it's to keep them functioning and working so they can pay their bills and come back and see me every 30 days. And, I, and that's, that's sad. But that's what we have. So it doesn't matter whether you look at the soil health side of things, the human health side of things, the climate health. 
we are incentivizing bad behavior and we as a society need to stop. On a similar vein, I have a question about carbon markets and you see these big players like General Mills getting really excited and coming behind this. What is your either your personal opinion or Rodale's stance on partnering with groups like these and maybe having regenerative practices, but you're still growing food that is going to be turned into processed sugary sweets and things. How do we not only focus on how we're growing it, but but what we're growing so that we're not just helping General Mills or Danone make really sugary snacks for kids? I would say that in general, the Institute, Rodeo Institute, does not get overly involved in determining what people eat. We just created a white paper uh, this past summer around uh, food and soil health and human health. And we talk about whole food diets and the, the need to get more wholesome food into our diet. But quite honestly, Rodeo Institute has very little impact on what people eat. And so we focus our energy on how what they eat was produced, because that is a place where we can have a strong voice and strong science backing. Um, I mean, most people understand that they should cut out their sugar, uh, but they don't. Most people, even smokers would say, I should stop smoking, but they don't. Uh, so we, as humans, we always do things that aren't necessarily in our own personal best interest, simply because we like it. You know, you, you bring up sugar, and, and that's a great one. I mean, the, the human body is uh, preconditioned to seek out uh, sugar, fat, uh, because sugar and fat are difficult to find in nature in general. Uh, we as a society have figured out a way to make it really readily available and people just can't seem to stop, which is why you have people eating a fat diet and they, they're, they're getting obese, they're losing their energy and they just keep eating it because you, you, your brain says, I want fat and sugar because in nature that's difficult to find. Uh, but in the, uh, the American diet today, it's very easy and we've made it so cheap. It's, you know, it's cheaper to buy a, uh, a bottle of uh, sugary soft drinks than it is a bottle of water. That's crazy. Uh, but we've made sugar so cheap that, you know, people can't seem to resist it. And, uh, and here we are. You see studies showing that these companies are more heavily targeting and marketing low-income black and brown communities, which is just really infuriating. Yeah, and then they are the ones with diabetes, and, and we know we can call can we type two diabetes can be almost a hundred percent, not a hundred percent, but ninety percent controlled with diet and lifestyle, and yet we can we try to manage it with pharmaceuticals because that, there's more money to be made in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, and then we put all of our energy into this sugar diet. So they're, they're drinking sugar on one end, and we're treating them with pharmaceuticals on the other end, and the same company owns both, and it's it's insane. It's just nuts, but we do it. See, the original farm policy was about ensuring domestic food security, and they they still say that, and we've gone to a point now where not only talking about nutritional or food security in terms of the calorie intake, but also nutritional security. And uh, I, for one, would like to see a clearer focus in the farm bill on food security, not just the quantity of food, but also the quality of food. And I think that would take us more toward a, an organic farming and regenerative agriculture and things of this nature. If we focused on the nutrient quality of the food all the way through the food system and not just number of calories that we're able to produce at a low cost. If we could do things over again, we wouldn't have a farm bill like we have today. We would have a bill that supports those in need with uh, uh, SNAP dollars and, and the food security issues on the food side. And then we would have a soil health bill. We need to put our energy into if we really are interested in agriculture long term, we have to focus on the health of the soil. And if we do that, our studies and our science has shown, you alluded to the fact that we have the longest long-term systems trials in the world here at Rodale Institute, and we do, and those trials continuously show us that the way we farm has a huge impact on the nutrition of the crop that we produce. We're not focusing on the nutrition. It's like, don't pay attention to that. Uh, pay attention to the soil health. And if you focus, because that's something farmers can do, and it's something we can measure, it's something we can incentivize. And if we were focusing on soil health, by default, we will have more carbon sequestered, and we will have more nutrition in people's diets. Yeah. And if we were focusing the farm bill on nutritional food security, then we would have to focus on soil health That's and the right. farm aspect of that bill. Well, and, and nutrition, you know, really runs the gamut. We're not just looking at some of the macro components. We're looking at some of the micronutrients and micro components right. of soil. Uh, ergothionine is a great one. Uh, ergothionine is an amino acid 
that we have known about uh, since I believe 1909 or something like that. They discovered it. Nobody knew what it was or what it did for in the world or how it was produced. Well, now we know it is produced by soil funguses and certain bacteria that act like funguses in the soil. Our soil microbiologists always tell me I have to say that uh, because some bacteria act like funguses and they can produce ergothionine and certain mushrooms will produce ergothionine. Turns out that ergothionine helps the human body prevent certain neurological diseases, attention deficit disorder, autism, and Alzheimer's. What are the three diseases that are on a rapid rise over the last 50 years? Attention deficit disorder, autism, and Alzheimer's. If you look at the ergothionine levels in our diets, they're about 50% of what they were from our parents. Half, it's been cut in half. And your body can't fight off these neurological diseases because we've robbed it of the tools it needs. Uh, ergothionine is the most powerful anti-inflammatory known to humans and it's naturally made by soil funguses. Now, when we spray Roundup on the field, our goal as farmers is not to kill off the funguses that produce ergothionine, but that's the byproduct. You know, if you look at uh, a TV ad today, if, if you happen to watch television, uh, you'll see that almost all the ads are for pharmaceuticals. And they'll say what the pharmaceutical is supposed to do to improve your well-being. And then they list all the side effects. And the side effects are more numerous and sometimes they always end up with the last one, which is death. Well, whenever you apply a material to the soil or into the environment at the rates and the levels that we do with a, a product like Roundup or, or glyphosate, you're bound to have side effects. Well, one of the side effects is it kills off the funguses that produce ergothionine. Right. If you applied it to do that, it would be against the law because it's off label, but you just get that as a side effect. And so we have to stop doing those things that are hurting us in terms of soil health. I remember going to the no-till conference in Kansas last year. I don't know if you were, were you at that one, Jeff? The no-till on the plane? I don't think so. Not last year, no. It was one of the most meaningful experiences of my life. I mean, I grew up in Hawaii and then live in San Francisco, so I never really get to interact with big time farmers managing a lot of land and conventional farmers and conservative farmers. I went up with a friend and she did the keynote. She's a doctor and she, just like you were saying, when the doctors visited you and they were talking about doctors are being pressured to push all these pharmaceuticals. And she said, doctors like her are being pushed to prescribe these pills. And at the same time, farmers are being pushed by companies like Bayer to use Roundup and everything like that. And the farmers really responded well to what she was saying. And I think a lot of times they don't even want to be spraying it, but they just don't really see any other options. I run a nonprofit called Herbicide Free Campus. I kind of covered my name tag a little bit because I didn't want them to get scared of this like activist in San Francisco that hates Roundup. But I had some really interesting conversations and a lot of them just feel really, really stuck. And so I was just curious about how viable you see no-till organic. Why are there still so many farmers that think they need to spray Roundup? A lot of them think that they're regenerative farmers still. And so I was just wondering how you see these farmers, do you see them all being able to move successfully to organic no-till farming? A lot, of, a lot of things to unpack there. Uh, glad you had a great experience in Nebraska uh, talking with those farmers. And you're, and you're right. Uh, I've, I've been fortunate enough to travel around the world and have met uh, thousands of farmers. And, and it's been a real blessing to my life. But I've never met a farmer yet that got up in the morning and said, my goal is to destroy soil health or to make people sick or any of those things that are happening or to contaminate the environment or the water that flows through my farm. That's not their goal. That's not what they're trying to do. We have because of the systems we've created, we force them to do things that most people know is not the best thing to do, but they feel trapped and they don't know what to do. Part of the problem we have, you know, in Nebraska or with any grain producing area of the world is by commoditizing the, the, the product that you're producing, we've driven the value out of it and the margins have gotten very small. So a farmer has to farm more and more land to make the same amount of money. You know, we, uh, I got a, a neighbor here that says, uh, we used to farm a hundred acres and we bought a con our first combine cost $5,000. Corn was 250 a bushel. We didn't know how we were gonna pay for it. Now he said that same combine costs over a half a million dollars, not $5,000. He said, 
corn is still, you know, <laughs> a little more than, than uh, 250 a bushel, like $4 a bushel, but that was back in the fifties. So we've made it up to $4 a bushel. And he said, and a combine is $500,000. I got, I can't farm that a hundred acres. I got to farm 5,000 acres and I still don't know how I'm going to pay for it. So we've just made the problem worse. So now you got a 5,000 acre farm. You can't afford labor. There's no money. The margins are so small. So the only way to get over that land in a reasonable amount of time is to do it with no-till and spray it. And many times you're using an outside uh, uh, person to spray that. They come in as a custom applicator and they apply that material because you don't even have the time or the, or the notion or you don't like it or you need a license to do it or whatever. Uh, and so you've got this industry that's all set up around applying those materials uh, to give you a successful crop. Uh, I was talking with a large grower on Eastern Shore, Maryland, and he said, if you're new to farming on Eastern Shore, Maryland, I can tell you exactly what day to plant your corn. I can tell you what variety to plant. I can tell you what to spray, when to spray it. I can tell you everything that you need to do to produce a crop of corn, and I guarantee you at the end of the year, you will lose money. That's the way the system is set up. Uh, and so we've got these recipes where everybody is happy except for the, the producer and the consumer, and we need to change that. So here at the Rodale Institute, we started working uh, quite a, well, I guess because of my age, quite a few years ago on this idea of organic no-till. And we said, look, if, if the challenge with no-till is managing weeds, how can we do that in a more biologically uh, intensive system? So that instead of managing the chemical inputs, let's manage the biological inputs. We know, for example, uh, and every farmer will agree with us, if you take a mulch and you put it on the surface of the soil, you go look at your garden. Most, a lot of farmers have a garden in their backyard and uh, maybe their wife manages it, maybe they do. And they go out and you put a mulch on the surface of the soil, straw, newspaper, carpet squares, uh, cardboard. I don't care what you put down. You put something on the surface of the soil and you stop the light, the sunlight from hitting it. Annual weeds will not germinate and grow. And every farmer in the world will go, yep, that's true. It's like, okay, how can we, now, now we know the biology of the system that works. You can stop annual weeds from expressing themselves simply by putting a mulch on the surface of the soil. Now, to use your case in Nebraska, if I go out to Nebraska and say, okay, uh, you've got 3,000 acres of land, let's mulch that. Uh, I mean, everybody would laugh and go, well, that's just ridiculous. I can't translocate all that mulch out here in the labor. I mean, it's, it's not a garden, it's, it's a farm. But if we can grow that mulch right in place and then terminate, by using a cover crop and then terminate that cover crop mechanically without any pesticides or herbicides, we can, in effect, mulch that crop right in the field where it's growing and stop annual weeds from, from expressing themselves. We won't necessarily be able to stop perennial weeds. If the weeds are already a perennial, it's well established. You can't, you can't stop that with mulch. I mean, if we have a macadam parking lot out here, a blacktop parking lot, and if, if we stop driving on it, eventually the cracks and crevices will fill with seeds, it'll break up, and in 10 years, we'll have to mow it. So, you know, you can't smother perennial weeds with uh, a mulch, even if it's something as much as concrete almost. But we do know that uh, we can stop annual weeds from growing for many years in, in succession. And so why don't we do that? Well, we have a lot of conventional farmers that are using a roller crimper, which is a tool we developed here at Rodale. Uh, we can we can take that tool and we can mechanically terminate a cover crop in the field, plant using modern no-till planter technology. Organic is not old fashioned. It is not looking backward. It's the future of agriculture. We're taking the very best of mechanical ingenuity, the very best of technology, uh, satellite guided systems, all of that makes perfect sense in an organic world. And we use those tools in conjunction with intensive biology to be able to produce crops in a weed-free situation. And we can do that at scale. We can do that on thousands of acres. I was in Argentina on a farm. That's 34,000 wow. acres of organic land, and they manage it with a wow. lot of it with no-till systems using cover crops. Why not? That's we can amazing. do that. Do you get a lot of farmers contacting you a lot that are asking for help on how to do this? Yeah, all day, every day. I mean, it's 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 been exciting to see. Uh, and again, it's not always organic farmers. Sometimes it's conventional farmers. Um, if you're a, a conventional farmer and you plant cover crops and you go out there and roll them and crimp them and plant your cash crop and you don't have to spray that pest, that Roundup, you plant it Roundup ready soybeans and you don't have to spray Roundup, you just made more money. You saved money by keeping that material in the jug. 
At the same time, if you did plant Roundup Ready soybeans and you do have escaped weeds, the biology of the system broke down a little bit, you can go out there and spray it if you want to. So you're not reducing your options, you're increasing your options. And at the same time, you're building healthy soil. So farmers that are conventional are saying, you know, we can argue here whether that's regenerative or not. It's a step in the right direction. Uh, if every farmer in this country used cover crops, it would be a step in the right direction. We talk about legislation. The challenge you have is if you plant cover crops and you don't terminate them with chemicals as early in the season as possible. You know, we always say cover crops are our best employee. They're out there on a day like today, even under the snow, uh, they're improving the health of the soil. They're feeding the microbial life in the soil. They're doing their thing. As soon as the sun melts and the sun hits it, they're gonna take off and grow. They're our best employee. In a and they don't complain. They don't complain. They just work, work, work. They'll take <laughs> fix nitrogen out of the atmosphere. If I have legumes in the mix, they'll do all of that work. But if I'm a conventional farmer, the regulations under crop insurance say you must terminate that cover crop before it's six inches tall. That's like saying you walk into a factory or any kind of a business and say, who's the best employee here? Oh, it's Mackenzie. Well, let's get rid of her. Why would you do that? You know, but that's what, so we need to adjust crop insurance to say, if you're going to use a, a roller crimper, you don't have to terminate early because you know that they're going to terminate it later. If you try to terminate a cover crop that's six foot tall with a sprayer, good luck. It'll never happen. But mechanically, we can do it in a matter of seconds. It's so easy and it costs nothing to do. So those farmers are, they have roots in the soil, they've got cover crops on the ground, they are improving the health of the soil. Now they may come back in a few uh, years and spray uh, pesticides on there and, and take a few steps backwards. And so we don't consider that fully regenerative, but some people might. And I, I encourage them to make those steps, uh, take those steps. What we've seen is farmers that take those steps and they start using a roller crimper and they start planting cover crops. They wake up one day and they look at their finances and go, wait a minute. The only thing I have to do is this and I will be organic and that crop is worth three times as much. Why wouldn't I do that? You know, sometimes it takes a neighbor to go, you know, you're, you're like almost, you almost boiled. What, what, why would you stop now? Just take that extra little step and you, the value of your product goes from whatever it is to something greater because the marketplace is going to reward you for that. And that's how we're seeing conventional farmers doing it. They're using a roller crimper. It's a great introductory tool for them to begin to explore uh, the possibilities of transitioning to organic on their farm. You know, we, we can agree that the federal government gets a lot of things wrong. Uh, they all, no matter which side of the aisle you're on, they also get some things right. They got the organics uh, regulations right in that you don't have to transition your whole farm. You can do it in part. You can do it in whole, but you can do it by crop, by field, uh, however you want to get started. So you can get your feet wet and learn a little bit. So if you, I tell everybody, take 10% of your farm and transition it to organic. You're going to learn a lot and risk very little because you're, if you're a good farmer, your chances of a complete failure are almost none. Uh, and so you're going to learn as you go and you're not going to have much to risk. So the, the standard lets you do that. The regenerative organic standard lets you do that. Uh, you can begin to explore these new tools and these new operations and the marketplace and, and get your feet wet. And I think that's a great opportunity for farmers of any scale or size to start with 10% and do that this year and, and, and look at where the future is going because it doesn't matter what what, um, what food processor it is, what uh, large scale producer it is, they're moving towards organic. You know, we call them lighthouse farmers. Uh, other farmers look to them and go, they make, they got that big by not making mistakes. Uh, they, you know, if they make a lot of mistakes, they're not, you're not going to be successful in any business. And that's true about agriculture as well. So when you look at your neighbor who's always making the right decisions and you see them moving towards organic, you should be moving too. start with 10% of your farm, learn as you go. You don't have to do it all at once uh, and set yourself up for the future of agriculture, not standing still in the past or you'll get rolled over, literally rolled over. And the roller crimper helps them do that at a scale that they feel comfortable with using their no-till equipment that they are proud of, rightfully, rightfully so. Uh, makes perfect sense. That's awesome. I completely agree. With our organization, we get groundskeepers to start a, a small pilot project where they're not spraying herbicides on the grass. And then once they get comfortable managing it, then they usually are the ones that want to actually expand it out. We're going to wrap up here in a second, and I'll let John kind of ask the final questions. But before we do, I did have one question about universities and agricultural extension agents and your view on that. I see this a lot in the work that I do, the power that these corporations have over universities and how that 
literally even affects what is applied to the ground, which is, is really interesting. But just in terms of if there's conventional farmers that contact Rodale, are you able to even point them to university ag extension agents or have a lot of that education been kind of co-opted by the industry? So your view on that, how we can make changes there with the ag extension agents and people studying agriculture that come out of universities, if, if you have any thoughts on that. Well, uh, sure, Mackenzie. Obviously, uh, universities uh, play a huge role in the way people farm. Uh, many farm farmers uh, go to those universities or get trained there. Uh, of course, the researchers and extension agents are all come out of that sort of um, university mill academia that that produces those those folks, and they're all bright and intelligent, and they are to some extent co-opted by the industry uh, because we do again what we're incentivized to do. And if somebody builds a big library and pays for all the research, uh, they're not doing that just to be good natured. You know, most of the, that research that comes out of universities, quite honestly, is not novel research. When a chemical uh, company, they've got their own research farms, they develop all this material, and then they give it to the universities to do research. But really, it's product testing, because they, they already know it works. They're not going to give them something and say, hey, see if this works. I mean, they know it works. And those into those universities use it as a teaching tool for their students who then become faculty of the research farms of the chemical industry uh, or, or they start teaching other students, you know, that's the way the, the, system, the system works. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit unfortunate. Now, we do know that there are some really amazing university professors who, because they have tenure and they can step out of that mold and begin to do some novel work, uh, will do that. Uh, but that has to be someone who wants to take that upon themselves, and not everybody is is motivated to do something extra. But many people are, and we have uh, university partners across the country who are doing some really interesting work in the organic world, in the regenerative organic world, or just the regenerative space as they may see it, who are working with the roller crimper, for example. And, you know, if you talk to the extension agents in uh, North Carolina, uh, they will say that the best way to grow soybeans of any, whether you're conventional or organic, is with a roller crimper. Uh, and so we, we see extension agents are willing to pick up this technology uh, and use it. Uh, you know, for the most part, extension agents are there to help support the farmers that they represent. So if farmers come to them with questions about that, they're, they're obligated to find answers and solutions and help farmers work through that. And farmers are, are genuinely interested in, I'll keep coming back to roller crimper technology, but there's other things that uh, cross the, the, the spectrum, uh, uh, particularly like in, in uh, vegetable uh, production or in uh, orchards, for example, where you're looking at pheromone mating disruption. Those kinds of uh, activities were part of the organic world, but now the conventional world clearly uses a lot of pheromone mating disruption because it works. And so when producers see that and they go, well, why wouldn't I do that? I would, if I can reduce a few sprays, I make more money. I expose myself to less chemicals uh, and they're willing to do that. And of course the uh, extension agency and the, and the uh, land grants uh, get behind some of that research and, and do some of that work. So that, you know, we, we have good partnerships there and good relationships. And we have some, of course, that don't work as well. Uh, it's, it's a spectrum. I think we pretty well covered the questions that I had, but uh, since we're focusing on the 2023 Farm Bill, are there specific suggestions or specific policies that Rodale would like to see put forward in the 2023 Farm Bill that hasn't been included up to now or maybe existing programs that need to be have increased funding or things of this nature? We've talked about several of the policy provisions already, but I just thought if there's anything specifically you'd like to see in the 2023 Farm Bill that we'd like to know about it. You know, from our perspective, of course, we love the, the words organic, regenerative organic, uh, and we'd like to see those words incorporated into the Farm Bill in some way, shape, or form. Uh, we know that when the federal government associates itself with certain words, it, it lends a credibility and power to those words. You know, we people argue that we should not have uh, organic as part of the USDA. But once the USDA adopted the word organic, the industry grew rapidly as it, it sort of gave the stamp of approval. Uh, well, if the USDA is behind it, it must be OK. And so if you're an early adopter and you want to move in that direction and you still have to meet your friends at the local uh, coffee shop or at the, the PTA meeting or whatever, uh, you can still hold your head up and say, well, I'm still farming by USDA standards. You know, it's, it's all OK. So if we can have the USDA uh, and the Farm Bill adopt some of those words, that would be great. If they can't, for multiple reasons, because of the way the aisles work, uh, 
if we could just have them begin to talk about healthy soil and get soil health as language in the farm bill, that would go a long way to encouraging people to move in the positive direction. And then put some re financial resources into equip funding so that cover cropping is not just a, uh, a money loser. You know, if you're paying a farmer $15 an acre to do it and it costs them 20, why would they do it? You go, well, I'm giving you $15. It's like, yeah, but it, Nobody, nobody works for break even at the best, you know, that's if, you know, if Mackenzie, he went to work or I came to work and I made a hundred dollars, but I charged me a hundred dollars to do it. Why would I do it? Uh, and, but that's what we're asking farmers to do. So if we really believe in healthy soil and we think as a nation, we need to improve the health of our soils and no matter who you talk to at, at the farm level, at, uh, at the United Nations level, at government levels, we all agree that our soil is degrading. Uh, the Mississippi River turns brown after it rains for a reason. Now, every farmer you talk to says it's not me. Well, it's somebody, uh, you know, because it's when it looks like chocolate milk, it's soil. So we're losing our soil. We're losing our the health of our soil. It's degrading, and we need to change that. So if we could incorporate language into our farm bill around uh, healthy soil and then get equip funds and other uh, existing uh tools that we have in place, crop insurance could be a tool. If we incentivize people to improve the health of their soil and said, if you can document, and we can create the measuring sticks for that, if you can document that you've improved the healthier soil, we'll give you an additional 10% discount on your crop insurance. Now we've incentivized farmers to do that. And they say, well, oh, I'm going to get paid for the cover cropping. Plus I get 10% off my crop insurance. That's real money in my pocket. Now I'm incentivized to do it. Why wouldn't I? Uh, and so we need to get a farm bill language that starts to incentivize the those things. Eventually, some people will become organic, we're convinced. Some will become regenerative organic, we're convinced. But let's not focus on that. Let's not focus on those words that create division. Let's focus on the words that we can unify ourselves around, which are around that idea of healthy soil, because every farmer wants their soil to be healthy. Nobody wants to be part of the problem. We all want to be part of the solution. That's a great place to end with that last statement that you made, Jeff. Thank you. Appreciate you taking the time to meet with us today. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Uh, I'd love to come back anytime. You're great folks to talk with. Always admired your work, John. And of course, I, I, I read up on your work, Mackenzie, before I got on the podcast and knew about your your herbicide-free uh, campus work. And, and that's that's great. I mean, and there's no reason to use it. We don't have to do that. Uh, it, there's just crutches and tools that people have gravitated towards. Uh, and when we don't have them anymore, they won't miss them. So great work on, for both of you. I'll echo what John said. We really appreciate you coming on and hearing about all the good work that Rodale's doing. So thank you so much. Oh, it was a pleasure and an honor to talk with both of you. Mm -hmm.